Witchcraft Made Science, a future-based podcast where we'll be discussing the witch as an age-old stereotype as well as a new feminist icon, making space for the spiritual, the scientific and the skeptical aspects of witchcraft, all seen from an artistic lens. In this podcast, we'll talk to a great selection of artists about how they define witchcraft, how the figure of the witch comes forward in their work, and sometimes even how magic and science can be intertwined. This episode, we will talk to... Emily Pellstring. Yes, hello, thank you so much for having me. Um, So my name is Emily Pellstring and I'm an artist based in uh, a pretty rural area of Ontario in Canada. And I work across uh, several media, video, animation, sculptural installation, performance, and music. And I do a lot of collaborative work, uh, co-direct projects with other artists um, and collectives. And I'm also an academic. I'm full-time faculty at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, uh, in the film and media department. So usually film and video is kind of a starting point for most of my work. Mm First of all, I guess there are several ideas of the witch and what the figure of the witch can mean on different levels. What is your idea of the witch? Well, to be honest, um, my first idea of the witch, I was raised in a pretty strict Catholic environment. Um, so, And I've always been, as, as far back as I can remember, a skeptic who really uh, bucked against the Um, what I always understood as an oppressive and abusive uh, authoritarianism of that culture. So um, when I was 12 years old, the movie The Craft came out Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I was immediately drawn to this idea of witchcraft, even though it was filtered through a kind of pop cultural, um, actually problematic in a lot of ways lens. But, you know, that's that caused me to go through a goth phase and try to convince my friends to do seances. And so it's always been a kind of background interest of mine. But as an adult um, and more recently, I've been interested in trying to understand all of the complex ways in which the image of the witch operates in the world for better and for worse. Um, I initially became interested in the witch as a sort of political figure that's been taken up by feminists as a reclamation of autonomy and and personal power, um, often in response to the conditions under which we live. Um, and I would say that still informs my understanding of the witch as a as a political figure. But of course, I also recognize that um, witch identity and witchcraft is part of a spiritual practice for many. I remember the craft when it came out as well. <laughs> <laughs> it made it made a, also an impression on on me. But I didn't go. I didn't do seances when I was when I was a teenager. But I still remember the film well. I'm really interested in your combination of camp aesthetics and feminist theory, uh, as well as the use of different technologies. For now, I want to discuss the interest your work takes in the intersections of science and magic. And what is your de- definition of magic? There are so many different ways that we can think about magic, and I'm kind of interested in all of them. Um, As a performer and a filmmaker myself, I often consider the way that I approach art making as a process to be related to magic or magical practices. It sometimes involves a sense of spell casting, of alchemy, of ritual, 
even of conjuring. So with my solo work, um, to to conjure images, I try to kind of tap into my core self or my subconscious um, or some sense of a collective unconscious. Um, and so I'm aware of and interested in the various magical practices that are out there um, that are, you know, maybe less about the performative spectacle of magic, like the magic show, which certainly figures into my work, um, and more about tapping into mysterious forces um, that we don't understand and focusing intention and manifesting change and listening to intuition. Um, I think those things are very much um you know, easily figure into the creative process for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I still, I understand that there's just such a, there's a, there's so many frameworks out there for understanding and engaging with forces that are mysterious to human beings. And some of those are magic and some of those are science. Um, and there's quite a range. And I don't think that magic and, you know, depending on what kind of magic you're talking about, I don't think that science and magic are necessarily uh, like at odds. I don't think they necessarily negate each other. Um, I think they're just different frameworks, but um, that they're all kind of useful. Yeah, I also think it also, like you said, it, it kind of depends on the way you're looking at it because I'm, I'm thinking also now about an essay, which is Midwives and Nurses by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English, which also talks about relationship between how science is perceived and how magic is perceived. Mm -hmm. So especially in the, what is it, 16th, 17th century, while science was developing, mm -hmm. um, it was really related to theology and mm -hmm. uh, Greek philosophy, while the magic of the witches, which was really about uh, anatomy and empirism, um, yeah, um, that that pamphlet is super interesting. Um, the Witches, Midwives, Nurses, A History of Women Healers, um, written mm -hmm. in 1975. Yeah, I mean, Jen, Nor Jen E. Norton, the other the artist I was working with, um, and um, Jen's child, uh, Edie, um, uh, we really laughed at that pamphlet. I mean, <laughs> laughed at a lot of the, the things that were brought up in that pamphlet together because they were talking about, I mean, they kind of were digging up this history of where this split happened with as the medical industry became established. And they point out that the lay healers were doing in, you know, using empirical methods. So everything they were doing was based on trial and observation and testing and, and recording information and passing it down. And it was much safer. And they discovered a lot of the things that we that are used in modern medicine, um, like analgesics, antiseptics, um, anesthetics. They, a lot of these were derived from plants that these healers knew about um, from testing. And so um, it is interesting that where that um, shift happened, where these people, because they were mostly women, had to be delegitimized in order for the medical industry to, um, to take hold because it was run through the church. Apparently only God could do healing. Apparently only God worked through men. I mean, God only worked through men. So um, they had to figure out a way to exclude women from this practice um, and, and really to justify that because people didn't want to go to the official, um, the official healers because they would drill holes in their heads, you know, to let mm -hmm. demons out and stuff. And you would go there with a headache and end up dead. So, um, so yeah, it, it, 
the rhetoric that they had to use to like launch this campaign against women healers um, was something that was of interest to us. And we wanted to make fun of that through this, this print that we made, the which based on this 1559 image by uh, Peter Bruegel, the elder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was, that was that project. We did it through augmented reality. We reenacted all of the scenes. We didn't even have to really interpret because they were already so hilarious and absurd. Yeah. Um, but we just reenacted what we saw and it, and it looked so campy and ridiculous. Um, so yeah, that was that project. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and also uh, what I also wanted to ask you about that intersection between magic and science, because this of course is one, historical uh, way of looking at it, but do you see a kind of feminist perspective on that intersection as it is now? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought so much about that um, specifically uh, through a like a feminist lens, but I think that we're still, we still feel the legacy of, of the kind of rhetoric that we were discussing with the, um, the witch of Malegan, that, um, that, uh, that delegitimizing of different forms of knowledge. I think um, that what it's really about is a question of what, what knowledge is legitimized and what is dismissed. And I think women still face um, feelings of delegitimization in the sciences and in medicine. Um, I don't have any specific stories about that, um, but I, I know that the legacies of these things are still very present in our life today. And I think um, there's a, a kind of widespread understanding that um, the dominant perception and definitions of the witch were really created to enable a violent epistemicide um, to like narrow down the ways that we can relate to each other and the ways that we can relate to nature, the planet, um, and really like like the femicide uh, that occurred with the witch hunts was was really a part of a campaign that that continues in many parts of the world to to like kill all options for understanding mm-hmm. and leave us with only the culture of domination and control that we currently live with. So I think the consequences of that violence can't be underestimated. Um, and, and to me, the, the real tragedy of it is this epistemicide that like narrows us down to patriarchal white supremacist capitalism, mm-hmm. you know? I'm also uh, thinking of ways feminists are taking magic back, use it as a political tool yeah, I mean, I think it. I think the figure of the witch becomes powerful there because, precisely because of how we understand it, um, how it's been used by church and state to kill women and colonize populations. So, it's very much embedded in um, this process of capitalist expansion, and that's what Sylvia Federici talks about. Um, in the lecture that she gave at the Witch Institute. Mm-hmm. And I, I just highly recommend Caliban and the Witch if you really wanna understand the way that witchcraft is used as a tool for, for capitalism, patriarchy, colonization, which are all the same, mm-hmm. um, or rely on each other so heavily. Um, so, I mean, given how how this figure, how witches and witchcraft and narrative of the witch or you know demonization of people, um, has been used by the powers that be. It's just not at all surprising that people who have felt 
um, like historically oppressed by church and state would reclaim that identity um, mm-hmm. and reclaim those practices that were once cast as witchcraft um, so that it's not something that's imposed on them, but something that they can control, um, a narrative that they get to um, kind of re- retell from their own perspective. So um, that includes like feminist collectives, um, like the Yerba Mala Collective or Witch. Um, and, you know, many folks from different cultural backgrounds interested in preserving and reviving ancestral practices that were either erased or barely survived this oppression, and then to try to use those to start to heal those cultural traumas. I think reclamation of the term and taking control of that of the term witch um, is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, why do you think the witch is so popular right now? Well, personally, I, I, looking at the kind of broad scope and grand scheme of things, I think that this rise in interest in witchcraft and the reclamation of witch identity is partly a response to the intensification, the undeniable intensification of conservative right-wing destructive politics that we're seeing across the globe. Um, I think it, you know, it is something that people do in response to cope with that and to counter it. And it's certainly worth um, digging into this and worth asking more questions about how these reclamations respond to the current conditions and what witchcraft and related practices mean now for for marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. Silvia Felici's uh, Women, Witchcraft and Witches, or the other way around, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of a collection of essays and, and, and lectures he did. And it's a great introduction to her theories on witchcraft, which also deals with, with contemporary witch hunts. And she's also saying in her introduction, like there's hardly any memorials or there's, there isn't a Memorial Day to remember the witch hunts. As, yeah, as my colleague Dan Venna Uh, Dr. Dan Venna pointed out, witches are one of the few monsters or supernatural beings that actually has a real world counterpart, mm. you know? And, and I think that makes the witch so interesting. You are listening to chapter two, sages who taught us how to lose the menacing things we found in chapter one by the powers. to talk to you about the powers specifically because you hosted sistership tv with the powers with this collaborative with this collective and sistership tv is a web-based variety show and why i want to discuss this with you is because the main characters of the show are three crones seem to be a nod to the three witches of macbeth and the gorgons from greek mythology goddesses of fate 
Could you tell me more about uh, the project and, and these characters? Yeah, absolutely. I love talking about the powers um, project that I do with my two best friends in the world, Jessica and Catherine. Um, so, you know, that project, The Powers, is kind of a band, really. It's just an, a band that got out of control. <laughs> it's really about collective energy, that project. Um, so Sistership TV was a, a TV show we decided to work on over the course of two years. And it was kind of a hybrid curatorial and collaborative project. So we invited a lot of guests to climb aboard the metaphorical vessel that we called the Sistership. And the sisters are the three of us, as you described, riffing on classical trinities of sisters that appear uh, you know, throughout Western uh, literature and mythology. So it took the form of a variety show. It was uh, most of it was live streamed um, on Vimeo, and so you, it would feature like live musical performances, music videos, interviews, animations, puppet shows, you know, all kinds, all manner of of you know different kinds of segments like you'd see in like a classic variety show. Um, and the mission was to use performative myth making to to like. Uh, you know, remake the kind of myths that we've been, we've inherited. So um, it's a noisy generative practice. It's really about forming connections and, and um, collective play and what we can unleash, you know, what kind of alternate cosmologies we can unleash through collective play. Um, so yeah, the three crones that you describe, um, while these figures exist already in these familiar patriarchal myths, they're often kind of sidelined within the narrative. So they're there in opposition to or in support of the hero. And so what we try to do is make them the key speakers in the narrative and place them at the core of the adventures. And they're just these welcoming hosts. And our whole project is really about revisioning the familiar. Um, and, uh, you know, we've come up with you know, through these crone figures, we've come up with an entire warped and absurdist cosmology, which is just, it's non-linear, it's meandering, it's never ending, it's collage-like. It, it, we interpret the meaning as it happens. So it's a lot of improvisation. Um, so we just conjure these characters that have one or two familiar or hybrid images uh, from from life or, or from the myths we're familiar with. And then we assign them new meaning and recast them in our, our new cosmology. So yeah. are there they kind of her stories? So like, instead of histories, um, <laughs> like a kind of feminist approach to history or, or well, I, stories? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah they, they're just different. <laughs> I don't know that it's, it's that uh, specific. So I'll give you an example and maybe that'll help. Mm -hmm. um, like one of the characters that was kind of developed partially on accident is called Blob. And Blob is just six people under a huge green sheet. And each one is controlling an eyeball. It's like looking in all different directions. And for us, Blob became a symbol of collectivity and collaboration, this being that is simultaneously one and many, like slime mold. And, you know, the slime mold metaphor was, we took from Karen Barad's uh, essay, uh, Nature's Queer Performativity. And that was around like scientific confusion over whether slime mold is one 
one being or many, whether it's plant or animals, this kind of uncategorizable being and the kind of anxiety that that provokes. Um, so, but we celebrate the the chaos of the slime mold. Um, so, you know, often characters like this get cast and recast in performances and videos. So, Blob has been around since 2014, where where it first appeared in an inflatable deities video called Eyelash Wars, where Blob was like part of an advertising spectacle for like a store that sold fake eyelashes in an alternate universe. But Blob has also been, you know, um, like a kind of a live performance character where we enter the stage as Blob and then shed Blob to become crones. And then most recently we made a video and a song called Blob Descending a Staircase, which is of course a reference to nude descending a staircase, mm -hmm. but a kind of more chaotic body. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's lots of characters like this. There's Cyst, Shitty Wizard, Hairball, The Shape, Skelly, Frankie. I mean, I could go on, there's a whole mm -hmm. cast. Um, so yeah, the crones are just there to guide you through these new myths involving this like wild, ongoing proliferation of beings that often don't even have their identities fully formed when we start using them. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a different method of storytelling, I think. So when you say her story, I guess I think of Ursula K. Le Guin's um, carrier bag theory of fiction, mm -hmm. um, where, uh, you know, where it's just thinking about narrative in a different way, narrative as a vessel. That really rings true for the powers, like the sister ship itself is a vessel. Um, you know, we had a whole thing about the wicker ball being a vessel. So we are kind of like interested in that metaphor. And one of the things about the uh, the carrier bag theory of fiction is how that story is is ongoing, how it's not about like a kind of conquering, it's just about this kind of maintenance or this this kind of like never ending process. Um, so yeah, I, in that sense, I suppose it is like a her story. Hmm. Yeah, but in a in a nonlinear way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But like it's pretty expansive, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you call yourselves a multimedia band or a band, you just said. Yeah. But, but you also call yourself a research group. So you already mentioned uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, Donna Haraway. So mm -hmm. what does your research look like and in what way does it come forward in, in your work as the powers? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I take a kind of um, broad definition of what research can be. So yeah, it takes the form of live performance, video, music, lectures, and, and written language as well, like texts and reading. So there's a lot of ways, I think, to express ideas and not all of them involve written language per se. So I see art making as um, a le legitimate mode of thought and communication. Um, it's, it's a way of creating symbols and working with symbols um, and relating them, relating ideas. And so, you know, I think as the powers, we have a combination of people who have varying, um, you know, varying ways of uh, th that they're drawn to in terms of how they communicate. I mean, Catherine is, is much more of a writer. Um, Jessica is a painter. Um, you know, so, you know, we, I think what we try to do is use any and every mode of thought and communication that's available to us, you know? Mm -hmm. Why limit, why limit your research to, um, to text? It doesn't really make sense to me to do that. No, that's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great way of looking at it. That's, yeah. That's true. Are you a co-organizer of the Witch Institute? 
Could you explain what it is? Yeah, so the Witch Institute was an online symposium that took place uh, last August, August 2021. Um, and it was uh, an academic, you know, hosted by an academic institution where I'm faculty, so the Department of Film and Media at Queens. And it was supposed to be the Summer Institute of our new graduate program in screen cultures and curatorial studies. Um, and it was a couple of really amazing colleagues uh, and I came up with this idea, um, Dr. Dan Venna and Dr. Tamara Deshegio Lang, um, who were just so awesome um, to work with. And so they noticed a trend in witch related media. Um, so Tama's area is uh, queer theory, queer archives, and Dan's area is um, trans horror cinema. So coming at it from lots of different angles, um, they were we all just noticed this witch, witch trend in popular culture and television, film, music, even fashion, where the witch is this feminist icon, as we mentioned earlier. And we wanted to just understand the significance of that resurgence of witch imagery. And I think we started thinking about this idea in like 2018. It took us a couple of years to get it together, to get the funding together. Um, but yeah, so we wanted to just create a space to bring people from various fields um, and various orientations um, to, you know, discuss our understandings of witches and witchcraft and to really kind of reframe these media representations and also look at them in a broader cultural light. So it was a huge um, project, actually. There were 18 roundtables, 14 workshops, lots of screenings, lectures, performances. I think all told there were over 120 artists and scholars and practitioners participating and um, over a thousand people attending. So luckily, I mean, we were lucky that we could do this online and have that diverse of, a, mm. of a, an audience and, and range of speakers. But yeah, essentially that was the Witch Institute in a nutshell. And most of it is archived on the, on the website. It's uh, just witchinstitute.com. Did you learn something new during the symposium yourself? Wow, yeah, I mean, I learned so much during this symposium. Um, and I guess because we were online, we were able to bring in such a wide range of perspectives. Um, what I was most struck by was the way that having scholars, artists, and practitioners of witchcraft come into dialogue really enriched the conversations and just gave me so many uh, angles and so many new ways of thinking about media, spirituality, creativity, political activism, um, and just trying to accept um, the diverse range of perspectives and approaches as as actually mostly not being at odds with each other. You know that like all of these things can simultaneously be true mm -hmm. um, and valuable. So so yeah, I mean it was just a very rich conversation. I think it should happen again. I think more, this conversation needs to continue. It really felt like just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was what I was wanting to ask as well as, as the final question, if you will be organizing a second edition. But Yeah, uh, I, mean, <laughs> I hope so. I mean, we are a little bit exhausted. Um, we were a really small team. Um, I mean, in total, there were 15 people-ish, I think, working on it, including other colleagues from um, like Ali Na, Dr. Ali Na, uh, and Sharday Mosner and John, and 
I'm going to forget if I start trying to do this, but yeah, we had a team of, of research assistants um, and our technical person, Stacy Spruill was awesome. And it was just such a huge project um, and we're still recovering um, and we're, we're working on co-editing a special issue of a journal and possibly doing a book project with some of the proceedings. And so that will come out probably in the next couple of years. And then we're also intending to reach out to the folks who are involved. Um, many people were very, very keen, people that we kind of attracted and collected through, through doing this to see if we can start some kind of organizational committee with folks at other institutions mm -hmm. so that hopefully the next iteration could happen maybe in two years. Um, maybe it's someplace other than Queen's University. You know, we don't need to be hosting it by any means. Um, we just want to gather again uh, somehow because it, yeah, like, like I said, it seems like the beginning of a conversation. So, so I would say to any listeners that are, that were, you know, want to host the next WIC Institute to please get in touch with us. Cause yeah, we are interested in, in gathering steam for another one. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Emily, for for wanting to do this with me, it was yeah, really interesting. Me. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. But before we go, somebody is trying to reach us. We have an additional question from the audience. You are now on Witchcraft Made Science. What is your conundrum? Yeah, thank you so much for choosing my question. Uh, I was just wondering, what's your personal stance regarding uh, heresy? Oh yeah, no, I'm a self-proclaimed heretic for sure. Oh. I hope I hope to get excommunicated for that officially. Um, <laughs> please feel free to excommunicate me if you're from the church and you're listening. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, the heretic movements actually, Federici talks about this in, in her book. The heretic movements are were really important oppositions to uh, the expansion of capitalism. I mean, it, it was because church and state are so deeply intertwined. Um, you know, those heretic movements were oppressed, you know, because they, they worked in opposition to the, the dominant mode. So I think heresy is a super important, um, it's basically like voicing an opposition to forces that are inherently violent. Um, of course, there's a lot of different forms of heresy, but, you know, the, the contemporary definition, I would say, I mean, if we wanted to relate it to these these early heretic movements is like, you know, anything that speaks out against these dominant powers that are um, uh, violently um, eroding our our lives um, and our ability to connect with one another. So yeah, I don't know, that's my take on heresy. Was that kind of what you were? <laughs> I wanted to mention, I'm excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> how did you do it? Well, they made it really easy oh. because I moved house. Uh, when I moved, I got a form and usually I get a form every time I moved like, okay, uh, we, we saw you uh, went to live in this neighborhood. This is the closest church in your neighborhood and please pay money. And I always ignored those, of course. And the last time I moved, I got a form with the same thing. Like here's the church, blah, blah. And I also got a form to uh, which I could fill in if I wanted to be excommunicated. 
Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They made it really easy. <laughs> oh, that's great. I haven't yet. I don't think they know where I am. <laughs> that, that's also a good thing because I was really freaked out when I first got those letters. But um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's tune in next time for another episode of Witchcraft Made Science. Thank you so much. Let's tune in next time for another episode of Witchcraft Made Science. Thank you so much. Let's tune in next time for another episode of Witchcraft Made Science. Thank you so much. And thanks to all for listening to Witchcraft Made Science. Thank you so much. Let's tune in next time for another episode of Witchcraft Made Science. Thank you so much. Let's tune in next time for another episode of Witchcraft Made Science. Thank you so much. Let's tune in next time for another episode of Witchcraft Made Science.